0: Wednesday, June 9th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Peter Bergman on the road for Radio Free Oz, and I'm at the Creep Air Force Base in the Doom Room. That's one level under the Situation Room at the DoD MGM Grand somewhere in Nevada. And with me is Colonel Bob Nuts, drone commander and showrunner here. Is that right, Colonel Nuts? Laugh at my name and I'll have you
1: drone. Well, huh? Ha ha, just kidding, soldier I'm not a soldier Everyone's a soldier when our country's at war
0: Yeah, right, well, okay, what are we looking at here on these two big video monitors?
1: Well, that one over there, that's AFPAC AFPAC? In Afghanistan, Pakistan, it's all one big show now well, Can we listen in, Colonel? Sure, that's Kiowa 84, it's hovering down the Kabul, to freaking nowhere highway no, I'm not seeing any sand jockeys down there. Bob, look, uh, let's get back to this uh, this waiver here and the re-upmanship papers. I, we really have to work this out. The bonus? What about the bonus? Well, it isn't strictly for signing the PTS waiver. I know, you can get simple. Re-upmanship, look at
0: graph uh, 3024. Yeah. It says uh, flight times times cultural relations times, you know. We can make a fortune. Can I talk to him? For sure. Say, soldiers, can you tell the RFO audience just what you're watching down there on the road? We are hunting rabbits,
1: uh, detergents, insurgents. Happy hunting, boys. Now, over there, Mr. Bretman, you can watch uh, Mexa Ritz. Wow, hi, Def. I can see the slats in the border fence. Yeah, they can get through those slats. Well, how? Blow a hole in them. Oh, Oh, look at this. They can just ramp up over the damn thing with one of their high-rider SUVs.
0: Wow, there's 50 people coming over the fence. What do you guys do now?
1: We drone them. Now, we're not allowed to drag them. We just drone them. We drone them into the hands of the... Here they come, the Hintville National Guard. There they are, just breveted right there to the big fence. That sounds painful. Hanging your body across the border is the least you can do for your country.
0: Yeah, well, okay. Well, thanks for the tour, Colonel. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, what's that? Captain, I got 12 possible insurgents at the Shake Shack down there at Click 343. I'm confirming. I'm confirming. Are they armed? Well, I can't tell if those are brokers or rocket launchers. All right. We have a crowd of presumed terrorist, militant, insurgent, aliens. Requesting orders. Requesting orders.
1: Ah, hellfire. Show them who's
0: boss. This is Peter Bergman on the road for RFO, and I'm out of here. Yeah, they're droning them and dragging them. AFPAC and Mexariz, Mexariz, too big, Mexariz. Yeah, big, too big, hot border. ariz I think of
1: Mexariz as uh, you know, being a high-low rider. It's got painted flames on the side. Nothing can stop the mexa There me- it is. And certainly
0: not some phony fence. Now the thing is, can we put the mexa up against
1: the AFPAC?
0: Well, that that's to come. But we won't have to worry about that this weekend, David, because you and I joining the other two fire signs are going to be hitting Portland for two days. Yeah. That being Friday and Saturday. And then on to Eugene on Sunday.
1: Well, it was a brand new experience for me, partly because I'd missed the email and partly because it was a big treat, but I was on a couple of uh, Eugene-area Uh, radio stations today and uh it was it was great being back on the radio one guy this one guy said you know I moved up to Oregon I went to broad you know Columbia School of Broadcasting whatever it was and I moved up to Oregon and I never left I said you're in the right place man you know and uh it was on like a CBS show CBS network show came out of Charles Osgood and went into all these local commercials and it comes into Radio Ray. And I said, man, that was just like listening to a fireside album at station break. Did you write it?
0: Absolutely. And and Eugene, I I went up there and I never left. How many people can say that? I mean, I remember when the Eugene bus... Came down to the Apollo when we were playing in Portland a few years ago. And it was, you know, Keezyland, right? But yeah, they weren't absolutely. dosing anybody. They were just playing all kinds of retro music. You know, <laughs> our rock and roll by now is retro, so it was retro totally music. Totally retro. And Portland, yeah. you know,
1: in addition to having the greatest bookstore in the world, we're yes. going to be down there for actually three nights. We get a chance to prowl yeah. Powell's for three, prowl, yeah, pr- three powls. days. Yeah, prowling Powell's. That's good. Three days. So that's exciting.
0: Yeah, we're going to be at a big, beautiful theater inside some sort of major. Center, they'll probably have an opera going on next door. You, you'll know the difference. And uh, we invite you all to come down and uh, take a look. Portland, baby, Portland.
1: Yeah, looking forward to that. Always like to go into the Oregon space because, you know, up here in Washington, we're, we're like too close to Canada. You know, we've got an attitude up here. Down in Oregon, there are they like it to rain. They love that soft moss. It kind of grows around their toes down there. You got to love them. They're laid back
0: folks. Yeah, they they're hobbits to the soul. Uh, by the way, if you want to know how to get tickets for our show, we're being totally commercial in this opening because hey, we're on the road so rarely. Go to firesigntheater.com and uh or you can come up to no, come up to the RadioFreeOz.com uh homepage and you you can get a hot link to firesigntheater.com and do it now. So we may have this oil spill till Christmas. Or for 10 years, or forever. Well, some people say, where is it? I don't see it. You know, they think of an oil spill and they picture a black tide engulfing beaches and drowning shorebirds and sea turtles in crude. Well, certainly these are the images from the Exxon Valdez accident, which spilled like 11 million gallons of oil into Alaska's Prince William Sound in 1989. The oil escape from the tanker eventually coated 1,300 miles of pristine Alaskan coastline and covered 11,000 square miles of ocean in an inky slick. The Valdez disaster was the biggest spill in American history until now. Since April 20th, when the Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded, killing 11 people, and triggered an underwater well blowout, at least 20 million barrels of crude, and counting, have poured into the Gulf of Mexico. And yet, where is all the oil, daddy? I mean, where is the disaster? This is what makes the Gulf of Mexico spill so much more insidious than that of the Valdez in Alaska, and a potentially much more destructive. The oil leaking from the broken well at the bottom of the ocean is everywhere, but nowhere you can see. When a tanker spills the entirety of its contents on the surface of the ocean at once, creating an avalanche of crude and immediate and horrific photographic images immediately appear. The Gulf spill gushes continuously out of sight, you know, almost a mile below the ocean's surface. The busted well is a fountain that the Obama administration recently admitted could flow uninterrupted until August and just might, and just might flow longer. Think of it less as an acute trauma than a chronic progressive disease that doctors can diagnose but cannot cure. So, where is the oil hiding? Scientists say some of it is spreading underwater in plumes that extend thousands of feet below the surface. But BP CEO Tony Hayward, let's get ready for Tony, well, he disputes those claims because he's such an expert. He says, the oil is on the surface. Hayward said while touring a staging area for cleanup workers in Louisiana. He said there was... I'm going to make it more English. He said there was no evidence that enormous reservoirs of oil were suspended undersea. I think I made him a bit too Australian there. However, two independent university research teams from the University of South Florida and the University of Georgia have reported direct evidence of underwater oil. Samantha Joy, a marine scientist at the University of Georgia, has been aboard the university's ongoing research voyage in the Gulf, so says Time magazine, and reported that the team could see oil in water samples collected from 1,000 feet below the surface. But seeing is exactly what will be hard to do with the Gulf spill now and in the months ahead. The oil underwater will do untold amounts of damage, even if it is invisible. Quote, it's out of sight and out of mind, but it will have a huge effect on the marine life that oscillates in that zone, said Doug Rader, the chief ocean scientist for the EDF. You can't see it but it's there. I like that that metaphor. It's a disease, a chronic disease that we can diagnose but we can't cure. David, uh, we're talking barrel apparel now. Barrel apparel. Yeah, clean okay. energy works is 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 going to have a big um Pro energy bill demonstration in sixteen states, okay. including Capitol Hill, when the senators come back, mm-hmm. if they if ever they ever come ever back. Come back. Yeah. Now here's here's how you make your own oil barrel costume. Oh wait a, you know, a minute,
1: wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, I'll take my shirt off. Okay, all right. Okay, I'm ready. I'm yeah, ready. For, well you're going to need, need. your for I'm each
0: ready? barrel. You're going to need a, a one Fiskars kangaroo pop up barrel bag. One Fiskars kangaroo pop up. Can to go
1: to Mutton smuts for that? Yeah, go, uh, okay, uh, about uh, can
0: of white Krylon Fusion for plastic spray paint. Oh, okay, that's good. Two twenty four inch bungee cords God, oh, and a sheet of eleven by. Seven thick stock paper and an exacto knife. You got it oh, all there. Okay. Got yep, all right. yep, yeah, step one. The knife, right. The whole thing. All right. In a well ventilated location. Do you think we're well ventilated? Well, it's the studio, studio, Pete.
1: But I'll stand back from the microphone. All right. So a spray paint it. the barrel black. Uh, okay, okay. Here we oh,
0: go. Uh, very good. Very oh, good. Yeah, now Now. Yep. Now while mm. the paint's drying. Uh-huh. Cut out those large handles uh, that's and attach them. Stuff.
1: It's, it dries like that. Here, well, so, cut out the handles and okay. attach them to the got, barrels. Got that. Yep. Or
0: attach the bungee cords to the small loops at to the top of the barrel. Yes,
1: yes. Bungee cords to the top. All right, now I'm oh, going to lower the barrel
0: you. over you. Okay. All right. Well, now all right. And since uh, the uh, barrel's dry, now yep, I'm going to yep, put yep. the stencils that I downloaded from the organization on the front. Okay, got a stencil and, here. All right. And a front on the back and then I'm going to okay. spray them. Okay. Right. There's the front. Oh, and, it's cold. that says, that says plug the hole. Plug the hole. Okay, wait a minute. Spray that one okay there we go with BP slime balls and then it says go cause trouble I'm gonna go and cause as much trouble as I can
1: me and my barrel
0: remember somebody wrote me that said uh radio free was too dire well if you have a like low dire quotient I want you to turn on NPR or some music right now because this article from Bloomberg is like it's upsetting babes BP's failure since April to plug that oil leak in the Gulf of Mexico has prompted forecasts that the crude may continue gushing into December in what President Barack Obama has called the greatest environmental disaster in U.S. history. Now, there's a Christmas present for the United States, a continuing gushing of oil. BP's attempts so far to cap the well and plug the leak on the seabed a mile below the surface haven't worked. While the start of the Atlantic hurricane season this week indicates storms in the Gulf may disrupt other efforts. Yes, I think so. 150 mile winds will have some effect on what's going on. The worst case scenario is Christmas time, says Dan Pickering, the head of research at energy investor Tudor pickering and Company in Houston. He said the process is teaching us to be skeptical of deadlines. Ending the year with a still-gushing well would mean about 4 million barrels of oil spilled into the Gulf, based on the government's current estimate of 12,000 to 19,000 barrels leaking a day. Of course, that's the low estimate. That would wipe out marine life deep in the sea, near the leak, and elsewhere in the Gulf, and among hundreds of miles of coastline, said Harry Roberts, a professor of coastal studies at Louisiana State University. These are experts talking, not harebrained wingnut bloggers. These people really know their stuff. So much crude pouring into the ocean may alter the chemistry of the sea with unforeseeable results, said Mark Sato, an associate scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts. BP, based in London, where many of them are hiding out at this moment, says it can't guarantee the success of its attempt now underway to capture the flow of oil and divert it to a ship at the surface. Thad Allen, the U.S. government's national commander for the incident, said operations may need to be suspended to allow for an evacuation ahead of a tropical storm or hurricane during which oil would continue to gush into the Gulf. The so-called relief well being drilled to intercept and plug the damage well by mid-August might miss as other emergency wells have done before, requiring more time to make a second, third, or fourth try. This, according to Dave Rensink, president-elect of the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. More experts lining up with tears in their eyes. They're all wearing black. We're in mourning. We're in ecological mourning. The ultimate worst-case scenario. Now, this is not the worst-case scenario. This is the ultimate worst-case scenario. It's kind of like a gamer's term. The ultimate worst-case scenario is that the well is never successfully plugged, said Fred Amenzade, a research fellow at the University of Southern California Center for Integrated Small Oil Fields, who previously worked for Corp. That would leave the well to flow for probably more than a decade, he said in a telephone interview. Ocean biologists are concerned that the oil could linger in deep layers in the sea, generating oxygen-depleted dead zones that kill marine life. Quote, clearly oxygen levels are going to be decreased in the vicinity of the plume area, and it looks like it could be a very large plume area, said Sato, the Woods Hole uh, oceanographer. The American Bird Conservancy has identified 10 key regions on the Gulf Coast where birds would be and could be harmed if the oil... Uh, is spread widely by a hurricane, there could be long-term damage to bird populations. The quote, what is difficult to measure is the loss of future generation of birds when birds fail to lay eggs and when eggs fail to hatch, said George Fenwick, the organization's president. Marine life may take decades to recover, wiping out businesses along the coastline that depend on the fishing and seafood industry. Let's not forget the tourist industry. al Sunsarai, who runs p and Oyster Company, the oldest continually operated oyster dealer in the U.S., said he could end up out of business. This would be the end of our 134-year-old business, he said. I've been doing this for 30 years. I have a son, and I don't know if he'll be able to carry on in the next generation. My, oh, my. You'd think by now that BP could get it, that they are generating the worst possible public relations in in, in corporate history, okay? You'd think they pay particular attention to their interface with real people in the Gulf region. Oh, no. As the black tide of BP Crude, by the way, this comes from the Daily Beast, one of my favorite little places. As the black tide of BP Crude oil moves towards the Florida panhandle, thousands of fishermen are trying to salvage a way of life. I can't blame them. BP's Lifeline, Vessels of Opportunity, a program designed to hire the fallow charter and commercial fishing boats to clean up the very mess that has caused untold numbers to lose their livelihood. BP's lifeline, Vessels of Opportunity, sounds like a wonderful idea. But a Daily Beast investigation reveals that this much-touted program is far more effective as a PR stunt than a financial savior. Specifically, a large number of the 1,900 contracts BP has issued across the Gulf have gone to owners of pleasure boats, doctors, lawyers, chiropractors, and the like who use their vessels for Saturday fishing trips or family outings rather than the decimated commercial fishermen. They couldn't have done a worse job of PR. The devil is hiring these people. We have these, this is a quote, we have these weekend warriors taking away jobs from those who fish for a living, said Biloxi Boat Captain Tom Becker, an officer of the National Association of Charter Boat Operators. So he knows. He estimates that as much as 90% of the BP contracts in the Mississippi Harbor have gone to pleasure boats. Every day I see the boat trailers fill the parking lot as the pleasure boats get their assignments for the day while the commercial fleet sits idle. This is like stealing. These jokers are taking money away from those who are trying to feed their family. These jokers. These ignorant, criminal jokers. Scott Robinson, president of the Destin Charter Boat Association, echoes the same message. Vessels of Opportunity is a fiasco, he says. We are nearly... 100 charter boats in Destin. Only 13 boats are on contract. The rest are pleasure boats. People being paid for their boats who don't make their livings in the water. And real money is at stake. Vessels of Opportunity pays the boat captains 1200 to 3000 a day. Depending on the size of the vessel, their deckhands are paid 200 for each day while they are under contract. We've got guys trying to make payments on their boats, tackle, and dock spaces who could use the $2,000 a day that BP is paying, says Robeson. Instead, it's going to private boats. In Pensacola, emotions are running high as bank accounts are drained. One wife of a charter boat captain with two boats carrying a mortgage of $500,000 describes how BP hired a boat owned by a chiropractor with purple and yellow flames on the hull. Quote, they have activated freaking ski boats, she cries, while my husband, who has been in the charter business for two decades, sits idle. thats It's just amazing. They go find some chiropractor's ski boat that's done up like a a lowrider and in front of all these people who are suffering, suffering because of BP's criminal negligence, right? They just goad them with this. I, I wouldn't be surprised if people with torches and pitchforks appear in London and take the BP headquarters down. Well, big oil is not quite so big anymore. BP, Anadarko Petroleum, Transocean, Halliburton and Cameron, all big-time industry players who had a role in the Gulf Coast oil spill, have each seen the value of their stocks drop significantly since the Deepwater Horizon explosion. BP's market capitalization, for instance, is roughly $73 billion less today than it was before the blowout in the Gulf. So this has cost them $73 billion in market capitalization thus far. It's probably cost us $3 trillion in real resource depletion. The trend may, well, very be temporary in short term, but for now, regardless of the extent to which BP's on the hook for footing the bill for the leaks containment and cleanup, A couple of things seems clear. These companies appear to be losing enormous amounts of money, at least as far as their long-term value is concerned, and Wall Street doesn't seem to be very confident that they can escape this episode unscathed. I don't think so. Over the last several weeks, for example, the liability cap on BP, which puts a ceiling of $75 million on economic damages BP would have to pay, I wonder who put that in place in Congress, has received a lot of media attention. Congress has introduced legislation to raise the cap to $10 billion. I think there was one senator, somebody from Oklahoma, who's holding the whole thing up. Somebody is. The concern, it seems, is that BP not get off too easy in what has become the largest oil spill in U.S. history. Now, according to the Wall Street Journal, the five companies, BP and Adarka Petroleum, which had a stake in the well, Transocean, the rig owner, Halliburton, allegedly faulty cement job, and Cameron, allegedly faulty blowout preventer, what a group, have lost a combined $100 billion in, a mar- in market value since the spill began. But regardless of the minute-to-minute and day-by-day swings, the overall trend seems clear. Down, down, down. Down, baby, down. Well, they know how to lose money, but they also know how to spend it. As Congress is investigating its role in the doomed Deep Horizon oil rig explosion, Halliburton donated $17,000 to candidates running for federal office, giving money to several lawmakers on committees that have launched inquiries into the massive spill. What a surprise! What a coincidence! The Texas-based oil giant's political action committee made 14 contributions during the month of May, according to our federal campaign report. 13 to Republicans and one to a Democrat. 13 to 1. Just say no and say yes with your hand open. It was the busiest donation month for Halliburton's PAC since September 2008. Well, we just kept those guys awake. Of the 10 current members of Congress who got money from Halliburton in May, seven are on committees with oversight of the oil spill and its aftermath. Halliburton's political contributions in May are the highest they've been since September 2009, when the PAC also gave $17,000 in donations. In fact, the last time the company gave more than $17,000 in one month was when it donated $25,000 during the heat of the presidential campaign in 2008 to keep that not-me from getting elected.
2: cut down all the willows That grew along the Rhine Where it flows past your home They log these hills all the time They paved the fields of my own Met in the middle, eye to eye. When we'd taken into the room, off to see the world and what it has become, and find a place of our own. Beside the fire of wood, smoke and breeze On the outskirts of town With your hair and your face Color on your cheeks Oh, it's there, your life Black doors are Belgian, Black sort to the sky The poison rains back down I'm standing in the doorway With my guitar in case Busking in this Europe. And I dream of going with you someday if I may If you'd agree And leave the pavements of our home places The scars we never hoped we'd see And beside the fire of wood, smoke, and breeze On the outskirts of town With your hair and your face and color on your cheeks Oh, it's there you lie down
0: We're honored to have Werner von Boom in the um, studio today. Thank you, Professor. It's, it's as I say, we're honored to have you here because we're going to need your expert opinion on, um, well, on an idea that is beginning to get legs in Washington. What they're calling the nuclear option uh, yes. on the yeah. oil spill. Mm-hmm. You're familiar mm-hmm. with this. Yes, let indeed. me give you a quote, yeah, yeah. but you know, let me tell you how hot this is getting. Yep. Uh, probably. The only thing we can do is create a weapon system and send it down 18,000 feet and detonate it, hopefully encasing the oil," said Matt Simmons, a Houston energy expert and investment banker.
1: Yeah, I know him. He's totally mad. He's totally, totally mad. mad. Well, he's
0: angry at the oil spill. Yeah, mean- he yeah,
1: it has every reason to be angry at the beeps. But uh, what are you going to do? He's insane. It's- Problem is solution is insane. Well, good. now Matt Hulten, right. now yeah. John
0: yeah. Roberts, who's with CNN, said simply: "Drill a hole, drop a nuke in, and seal up the well." What about that? I mean, there, 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 you go.
1: Huh? Yeah, well, don't watch television. Would be my advice about that one. yes yeah. totally mad. So totally mad.
0: So the, the nuclear option doesn't make sense. No, to
1: you? I like the nuclear option. Uh, you know, I'm the person who I didn't invent the H bomb. I invented the idea that we could actually drop the H bomb. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. a good idea yeah. and uh, scared the hell out of people for a long time. So really,
0: the H-bomb is not your uh, scientific property, it's your intellectual property.
1: That's right. What I think is that if we, uh, you know, I don't know about the, the, what you said, physics of it, you know. But it seems to me that if you put the H-bomb on the bottom of the ocean… All anybody will see is the big cloud of uh, water vapor, right. yeah, the battleships going up. No, that was in 1949. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kidding you. Yeah. But uh, no, it's, it, it actually will be all the shrimp. There's a lot of wet shrimp down there, you know. So uh, so they put it on the bottom. They're, they cut off the top of the... The, the, the veil now, yeah, you know, right. so there's just it's just pouring out. Now. Well, yeah,
0: they finally got the saw through the it. The big flush, is yeah. coming out. So you put it down there. So the you H-bom- get one of the little
1: nukes, like yeah. the kind that comes in the helicopter, the attack helicopter, you know. Mm-hmm. They got them very small. So you drop one of those right down the hole, you know.
0: And then? Yeah,
1: it keeps dropping.
0: And then? Yeah, it keeps dropping. And then? Big boom! Big boom, and that just fuses the whole thing or does turns
1: it turns the entire bottom of the uh, caribbean sea no this is the wrong one yeah the gulf of no, it's the gulf of mexico to sure. glass to Tur- glass that's it
0: to and, glass and then that's a big tourist attraction you can get the glass bottom boats you can look at the glass bottom on the bottom of, that's a wonderful idea sure and you know atlantis is down there too <laughs> here's some more on the uh, flash trading plague this out of newsweek On April 26th, the Dow Jones Industrial Average stood at 11,205, up nearly 70% since its low in March of 2009. While there were bumps along the way, the ride from 6,500 to 11,205 was generally smooth and steady. But the placid markets were about to get hit by a tsunami. When it became evident that Greece's financial woes might spark a Europe-wide sovereign debt crisis, the waters began to churn. The Dow lost 214 points on April 27th and posted triple-digit moves on 13 of the next 17 trading days. That's high volatility. That's bad news. Worse was the flash crash of May 6th when the Dow lost 998 points in a matter of minutes, only to rally more than 600 before closing down nearly 350 points. That's insane insane. That's not stock market trading. That's digital madness. Suppressed for much of the recovery that began in the spring of 2009, market volatility has come roaring back. On May 21st, the VIX, which measures the volatility of the Standard & Poor's 500 and is also known as the fear index, spiked 25%. Hey, fear is up a quarter. Who's to blame? Many analysts have fingered high-frequency traders, computer jockeys who plug complex trading algorithms into super-fast computers and scour the markets for tiny price differentials. Yeah, they're really doing us a big favor. There is nothing productive going on here. It's just the trading and shaving of pennies. They want to do it? Fine. They should do it in some other stock market, and they should be taxed at 98% have fun, you're not doing anything good for anybody, you don't make any real money doing it. See, by trading vast amounts of stock at warp speed, as many as a billion shares a day, high-frequency traders gobble up fractions of a cent at a time. The more volatile the market, the easier it is for them to make money jumping in and out of stocks across exchanges. Ah, across very exchanges who don't talk to each other. So the stock market still harkened back to the coffee houses of 17th century England. And we're in 21st century America, you know, four core processors. You know, somebody got the gig of putting the gig in the gigabyte and nobody has figured it out except these people computer jockeys, most of whom are in tiny buildings under McDonald's in New Jersey, or something else is charming. Markets become volatile when liquidity dries up. In other words, when people can't trade stocks when they want at a fair price, high-frequency traders thrive off volatility, because when liquidity is in short supply, it becomes very profitable to provide it, says Manoj Narang, founder and CEO of TradeWorks, W-O-R-X. My, can he spell. A hedge fund and high-frequency trading firm in Red Bank, New Jersey. So Manoj Narang is the one that's making uh, volatility or liquidity available to the American or the world public. I don't trust him. Politicians and regulators are starting to get nervous. Hmm, maybe about time. I'm afraid that we're sowing the seeds of the next financial crash, said Senator Ted Kaufman, the new Democratic senator from Delaware, arguably D.C.'s most vociferous critic of high-frequency trading, or what they call HFT, will you go, guy. Within weeks of taking over Joe Biden's seat in early 2009, Kaufman, a Wharton MBA and longtime aide to Biden, was pushing for stringent financial reforms. Last August, he focused on HFT, urging the Securities and Exchange Commission to take a ground-up review of the entire electronic market structure. I don't know if they have the wherewithal to do it. We're dealing with something highly complex and completely unregulated, he told Newsweek in March. The last time we had that mix with the practitioners telling us, don't worry about it, things didn't end well. The time for trust us went out the window a long time ago. High-frequency traders may have become the new villains of finance, but their computer-driven methods, which now account for upwards of 70% of all U.S. equity volume, they aren't going away. We can't make them go away, but we can make it a lot less profitable and a lot less fun. To a large degree, fundamental investment strategies, i.e. buying and selling stocks based on a company's performance, remember when you used to invest in a company because of its performance? Well, they've taken a backseat to algorithms hunting for inefficiencies. It's a stock market point and shoot game. These are we're being gamed. The entire economy is being gamed. And the practice is beginning to spread from the US stock market into new areas, Europe, Canada, Brazil, India, and other asset classes like bonds and futures and currencies and soon toxic derivatives. Assuming the financial regulatory reform bill forces derivatives onto exchanges, high-frequency traders will no doubt trade in them, too. They'll trade in anything. They're not touching it. It's the motherboard that's doing it. We're, you know, that motherboard. And every day, things are getting faster. Four years ago, executing a trade in a millisecond, thousandth of a second, was considered fast. I think that's fast. Now the top firms are trading in microseconds. That's one millionth of a second. How long before nanoseconds and picoseconds? The last few weeks have been the biggest bonanza for HFT firms since the crash of the late 2008 and early 2009 when the Dow buckled and thrashed its way down to 6500 on March 9th. While most long-term investors lost their shirts during the great panic of 2008, high-frequency traders posted huge profits and went out and bought expensive handmade shirts. That was the Golden Goose area, says Narang, whose HFT shop launched in March 2009 and just finished its most profitable month. Close him down. It is precisely this ability to profit amid widespread carnage that has aroused the attention of regulators. It's like all the plague dandies that walk over the dead bodies wearing the big, long, black wax noses. That's who Narang and his booster boys are. They are walking on top of the carnage of our economy. Many have come to see high-frequency traders as nothing but digital piranhas. Mm, That's good. Creating feeding frenzies that send the market into violet swings for their own profit. Well, why aren't we stopping them? Still, the first wave of regulation to come after the flash crash hasn't been aimed at speed traders, but at the exchanges, which, uh, 10 years after going electronic, are still largely a patchwork of cobbled-together systems. So far, high-frequency traders have emerged unscathed. Let's do something about this. Uh here's one from uh Huffington. Kenneth I Starr. This is not the Ken Star that you know tried to and probably ruined President Clinton, right? The one who who terrorized Monica Lewinsky. No. Kenneth I Starr played a game of hide and go seek with prosecutors recently, accused of stealing 30 million from clients like Wesley Snipe, Sylvester Stallone, and Martin Scorsese the financial advisor to the Stars was found crouched behind coats in the closet of his upper east side apartment and yanked out by the collar, according to the AP. Mr. Starr, 65, had a number of hiding places to choose from. Why? Because his, this manse that we're talking about, this East upper east side manse, had, uh, let's see, five bedrooms, mm-hmm. six and a half baths, and a 1,500-foot square garden on the main floor. And a big safe where he kept all that money. Yeah, yeah he right. should have hidden in the safe. There you go. 1,500-foot F- garden? Yeah. Was S- he good? To like corn and a- who knows? He was, you know, maybe growing pot. I don't know. Okay. Starr's alleged fraud is characteristic of a Ponzi scheme, said Robert Berenger, a special agent for the IRS. The investment advisor illegally held clients' assets at the offices of Star and Company in midtown Manhattan, says Daily Finance, just blocks away from the old office of Bernard L. Madoff. Mm. Investment securities. Oh, he's kind of Bernie light, right? Much like Bernie, was serving a 150-year sentence for bilking tens of billions of dollars from his closely knit network of clients and charities and colleges, Ken Starr of Manhattan cultivated businesses, business at charity events and lavish parties, bridging the worlds of New York and Hollywood to build a star-studded client list of socialites, not socialists, socialites, financiers, and philanthropists. And you can't be one and the other. Oh, and A-list actors and Hall of Fame athletes, one of whom I think is going to come and take his head off. Mm -hmm. Also charged, here's the one, though, New Yorkers just, they wince. Also charged is former president of the New York City Council and New York State Assemblyman Andrew Stein, who regulators describe as an associate of STARS. Stein allegedly used money from shell corporations funded by STARS clients to pay for personal expenses like a summer home in the Hamptons. Oh, God. Oh, Can't they my. ever learn? No, they never, never learn bilk, bilk, bilk until they're pulled out of their closet well, just by seemed, the collar.
1: In New York, it's the states. I mean, New York is literally full of gangster politicians in Albany. There's just there. I mean, I'm sure there's some guys who say, really, how do you write a bill exactly? Because I really, I got a good idea here. It has to do with shellfish, somebody in my
0: hometown. No, sh- that shell corporation. Oh, so a shell corporation. So that, corporation. That you're going to milch from. Oh. Here's the thing. The Big Apple people, the Gothamites are considered, you know, savvy and cynical and, you know, they'd rather say no than yes and all that. And yet it's in New York that these mumsers are raking all this money and pulling these incredible scams. Bernie Madoff was declared online trader of the year two times by Barron's, the big financial newspaper. A man who it is revealed never made a trade in his life.
2: Sure was cold, oh when you stood me up. Sure was cold, you put my head on the chopping block. Yeah, sure was cold. Sure it's cold, baby. You're not coming home. It sure is cold, baby. Ah, it sure is cold. It sure is cold. Oh Lord, he's sleeping all alone.
0: As we know, uh, the war in Afghanistan and Pakistan have now been kind of put together in one acronym. It's now the AFPAC theater. Right? Scary. Very scary. So we here at Radio Free Eyes have created the mexaris the Mexican Arizona border, isn't oh, that? That's another one. Mexeriz. Yes, Mexeriz. Well, All right. here, here's 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 some here's let's here's two or three stories about Mexeriz. We're okay? on the
1: Mexeriz. All now, right. Uh,
0: the city of Tucson has joined a lawsuit by one of its police officers to block Arizona's immigration enforcement law. The suit was filed uh, in late April in the U.S. District Court in Tucson on behalf of Tucson police officer Martin Escobar. It alleges the new law violates numerous constitutional rights, could hinder some police investigations, and violates federal law because Tucson police in the city have no authority to perform immigration duties. Okay? How about that? Wow. Okay.
1: Well, I think it's interesting when a city sues a state. You know, that's like your nose- (laughs) <laughs> suing your toes, you know?
0: Your nose suing your toes. Very, uh, uh, very, very good. and you, So that means <clears throat> the Tucson's giving the finger to basically Phoenix, or at least to Governor Brewer, right? Well,
1: certainly to Phoenix, and they always have. Yeah, they You have. know, a Phoenix, you know, let, let's put it this way, Arizona is a lot more interesting these days than it ever
0: has been. Yeah, right. Okay, now, yeah. so you've got the Tucson police and Tucson City are are, are bringing them to court. The musicians are boycotting them. Okay, Kane West is among a group of artists who are refusing to play gigs in Arizona, protesting against recent uh, changes to the immigration law. The group called The Sound Strike is led by Les Ant- the rockers Rage Against the Machine and featuring Cypress Hill, Massive Attack, and System of a Down's Serge Tankin familiar with his work, and they're boycotting the shows until SB 1070 is amended. That's the bad job. It's uh-huh. uh-huh.
1: system of a down, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah they're, that's. Mm-hmm.
0: Rage Against okay. Machine's lead singer, Zach De La Roca, said, some of us grew up dealing with racial profiling, and this law takes it to a whole new low, right? Take it to a whole new low. Writing on the group's website, uh, De La Roca described the situation as critical and concluded that we are not going to play in Arizona. We're going to boycott Arizona. If other states follow the direction of the Arizona government, we could be headed towards a pre-civil rights era reality. He's rancher. Oh, yeah. I mean, these guys. Okay. Just...
1: No, I think that's really smart is not, not to play the state, not to take your um, uh, big convention to Arizona. These, this is what's gonna First place, the the fiscal pain of losing the money and all of that, that's going to hurt. But all of those teenagers not paying their $35 to go see System of a Machine. Yeah. It's Rage Against Brewer. Rage Against, yeah. And yeah, they're going to be on call, That's You don't want to upset DeJute because right, now, now, Brewer. They vote.
0: But, but Brewer. Brewer's enraged because Brewer. she's is the governor. A, yeah, okay. Jan Brewer's enraged because she's angry about the dust up over her comment that her father, quote, died fighting the, not, the Nazi regime in Germany. In an interview with the Arizona Guardian, Brewer said she never misled anybody and she said she's fairly devastated by this. There is no way I have ever misled anybody. You're trying to make a liar out of me, Brewer told the Arizona Republic in a recent interview that her father died fighting the Nazi regime in Germany. But according to the Guardian, Brewer's father, Wilfred Drinkwine, His name, Hmm. Wilfred Drinkwine, died of lung disease in California in 1955. A brewer spokesperson said that Drinkwine had inhaled toxic fumes while working during the war as a civilian supervisor for a naval munitions depot in Nevada. The spokesman said the fumes eventually killed him and that he was on full medical disability at the time of his death. Uh, said,
1: sucking in those fumes, I mean, yeah, yeah go said, ahead. Yeah, she what said, said, knowing
0: yeah, that my father died fighting the Nazi regime uh, in Germany, and that's true, he, he did, he was you know, doing something. Well,
1: the Nazi regime was in Germany, Germany right. at the time. And he was
0: not in uniform. Yeah. She said, "She said, knowing that my father fought, was died fighting the Nazi regime in Germany, that mm. I lose him when I was 11 because of that, and then to have them call me Hitler's daughter, it hurts. It's ugliness beyond anything I've ever experienced. She's not Hitler's daughter. She's not. She's Hitler's stepchild. Well,
1: Peter, with all this talk about, uh, you know, aliens and Mexico and Mexariz and all of that, I had to get a book called Patriotic Gore out of my library. This came out in the early 60s, written by Edmund Wilson, a really smart guy. And I thought, if I looked in this, why we could maybe explain why Arizona is where it is and Mexico is where it is. Let me read this. Like modern France and the Soviet Union, we inaugurated our national existence with the expulsion of the agents of a monarchic power. And as soon as that had been accomplished, the process of expansion began. This, except for our struggles with the Indians, to which I shall return later, was for some time peaceful enough. We bought Louisiana from the French and Florida from the Spanish— In the case of Texas, we colonized it when it was still a part of a Mexican province and under the rule of Spain, and we made offers to buy it from Mexico, but the Mexicans would not sell. The colonists from the United States eventually drove the Mexicans out and set up an independent republic, which later became part of the United States. Well, now, with the British, we made a settlement to take over the Oregon Territory, but with the relatively incompetent Mexicans, we continually became more high-handed. We demanded of Mexico the payment of a very large compensation for property belonging to Americans, which had been lost in her revolutions, and for Americans who had been shot in Mexico. We offered to cancel this debt if the Mexicans would cede to us that part of their territory, which lay north of the Rio Grande and which we claimed as a part of Texas, and we tried to buy California, which was also a part of Mexico, but which was already being settled in the northern part by pioneers from the United States. The Mexicans refused both these offers, and President Polk retorted by sending troops to occupy the territory north of the Rio Grande. The Mexicans defended it. The United States declared war, invaded Mexico, and captured the capital city and took over by force of arms New Mexico, California, and all the rest of the unsettled West. This amounted to more than half the territory originally owned by Mexico. The government of Mexico was compelled to sign a treaty with us by which it was agreed that in compensation for the land that had been taken from it, we should pay them $15 million and let them off from responsibility for the claims that the United States had pressed. The sentiment that justified the Mexican War may be illustrated by an extract from a letter written in 1847 by William Gilmore Sims, the South Carolinian novelist and publicist, to South Carolinian Senator James Hammond. You must not dilate against military glory. War is the greatest element of modern civilization, and our destiny is conquest." "'Indeed, the moment a nation ceases to extend its sway it, falls a prey to an inferior but more energetic neighbor. "'The Mexicans are in the condition of those whom God seeks to destroy, having first made mad. "'They are doing their best to compel us to conquer them. "'It is now impossible that it should be otherwise. "'Mark my words, our people will never surrender an inch of the soil they have won.' They are too certainly of the Anglo-Norman breed for that. Oh, we will pay for it, perhaps. But only out of the assessed expense and damage of the conquest to us. So there you are, Pete. It, it seems like we fought a war and, and took Arizona away. Well, Pete, I never thought it would happen again, but the president... George W. Bush, W. W. is out there again, talking it up. I mean,
0: and mm. proud of his accomplishments. All right. Well, naturally,
1: Uh, he's got a library. He
0: said. He said at a a recent speech, he gets a lot of money for these speeches, and there's nobody in the crowd because nobody's interested. But they already paid him. You know what I mean? It's part of the payoff. He said he would still waterboard the self-professed mastermind of September 11th if he had to do it all over again.
1: If, now, you mean if you had to do September 11th? All over all again. All over again, yeah. he'd waterboard him. Yeah, waterboarding, as okay. you
0: know, is a simulated drowning technique that the Obama administration considers torture. Okay? Bush I ac- don't like it either, but no, go ahead, Pete. I, I consider, uh, you know, <laughs> listening to George Bush torture. But yeah. Bush acknowledged— uh, that the U.S. used the harsh interrogation technique on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and said he would do it again to save lives. And he made this comment speaking to an empty economic club of Grand Rapids, Michigan. (laughs)
1: Grand Rapids, Michigan. That's where Gerald Ford is... Is, is spinning Haunting, in his I grave. You know? it, yeah,
0: Mohammed was captured in Pakistan in 2003 and is the most senior Al Qaeda operative in U.S. custody. If he isn't already drowned, we don't know if he's alive. Yeah. In his speech, Bush defended the decision to go to war with Iraq in 2003. He said ousting Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein was the right thing to do, and the world is a better place without him. Can you believe this the world
1: man? is a better place without him. I think I think we've spent a trillion dollars now disposing of uh, uh, of uh, Saddam Hussein and uh, and the- and each one of the little individual droners that we're plucking off. Pink ah, got you Ali, Pink got you Muhammad, Pink. One,
0: at, know, a one at a time. One at a
1: time. Well, I guess that's uh, you know, I guess that's the way, but the the the, the two wars
0: Trillion bucks. A trillion bucks to find out if indeed the world is a better place without him. We have learned that Iraq rock may not be. Like all good things, and Radio Freyaz certainly is a good thing, it's coming to an end for today. Uh, we're not doing Tang poetry, 7th century. We're going to go into the Elizabethan period. That's exactly right.
1: Uh, Shakespeare, the great Shakespeare, in his, uh, uh, his best comedy, I think, Anything You Want to... Lost, Um, recently discovered. Oh, recently discovered, lost for what, five, six hundred years. Yes. But uh, just as fresh and as new as it could possibly be, um, in that there is actually a scene in Anything You Want To, about the oil spill. And I thought I'd just read. How prescient. Yeah, uh, unbelievable.
0: So, And you'll be able to hear this performed by the Firesign Theater this weekend. Oh, yes, it's a Portland, premiere. In Portland, Friday, Saturday, and, yes, premiere. Yeah, we have never Eugene done this, this
1: scene before. It's in Portland, and Eugene coming up. Uh, Edmund, Edmund, the uh, the bad guy in, in in Anything You Want To, uh, is found on the beach covered with oil yeah. by these fisher folk. And he says, uh, Edmund says, back off, buffoon. I'll wipe myself and staggering stand up while I doot. This oil I wear is mine and mine alone. I'd carried back from New Virginia's tideland pools 4,000 barrels worth. Now all, all lost. There's been a shipwrecky. The new world's power sunk useless to the bottom of the sea. And, and Flounder, the, the, the fisherfolk guy, says, <laughs> Nay, tis not. Christ-like it rises as you speak Upon me soul Tis upon the bottom of me boot By St. Exxon's broken hull It's here, it's there It's all o'er everywhere How prescient Can you imagine?
0: Oh, Radio Free Oz Find us at RadioFreeOz.com I love the splash page today It is so beautiful I'm your host, Peter Bergman, my co-host, David Osmond. John Cumming is our technical consultant. Phil Fountain does the beauty shot. Tom Gedrillo is our webmaster. Chaz Glass, financials and development. Dave Maloney, oh, he does the recording and he does it well. Bill McIntyre produces the whole schmageggy. And Scott Wilde is our social media guru. Catch you on the next side.